Welcome to the podcast. Today we will be discussing child abuse reporting. Let's get legal. All right, today we'll be starting a new section of the landmark cases, child cases. Sadly, it's our last section. We will be discussing the cases under the subsection child abuse reporting. Please keep in mind that uh, this episode discusses child abuse cases and might not be suitable for all audiences. Our first case today is Landeros v. Flood. In 1970, 11-year-old Gita Landeros was taken to the San Jose Hospital by her mother and examined by Dr. Flood. Dr. Flood's examination revealed multiple bruises at various stages of healing. Further evaluation of Landeros's leg showed a spiral fracture of her right tibia and fibula, a common injury of a twisting motion often associated with abuse. The mother did not have an explanation for the fracture. She was treated by Dr. Flood and discharged to the care of her mother. Approximately one year later, Landeros was brought to a different hospital by her mother and was noted to have a partially healed skull fracture, a traumatic blow to her eye, puncture wounds, bite marks, and burns on her hand. She was diagnosed with battered child syndrome and placed into foster care. Landeros's mother and her common-law husband were taken into custody and eventually convicted of child abuse. The state-appointed guardian for Landeros filed a lawsuit against Dr. Flood, stating that he should have identified that the injuries were caused by abuse. The trial court dismissed the case, but it was appealed to the California Supreme Court. The California Supreme Court ruled in favor of Landeros, stating that the vast majority of physicians would have been able to identify these wounds as a result of abuse. They ruled that he could only be found civilly liable for not identifying the obvious cause of the injuries and failing to report the abuse to authorities. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. Physicians have a mandatory duty to report suspected child abuse to authorities and failure to comply with this duty can be considered negligence and lead to civil liability for subsequent injuries to the child, even if caused by third parties. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember LF, the initials of the two people named in the case for leg fracture, the injury sustained initially missed by Dr. Flood, and how he was liable for not figuring out the abuse. I also remember the litigation floodgates open up if you don't report potential child abuse. So a lot of LFs there. Our next case is People v. Stritzinger. From 1980 to May 1981, Carl Stritzinger had been sexually abusing his stepdaughter, Sarah. When Sarah's mother found out about the abuse, she arranged for her daughter and for Carl to be seen by a psychologist, Dr. Walker. During a session with Dr. Walker, Sarah revealed the sexual abuse. As per mandated reporter statutes in California, Dr. Walker called the Child Welfare Services that afternoon to report the abuse. The agency in turn relayed the information to the sheriff's office. The next day, Deputy Buttle called Dr. Walker to follow up on these allegations. Dr. Walker discussed some specific information about the abuse and Deputy Buttle requested that Dr. Walker call him again after his therapy session with Mr. Stritzinger to discuss any further details revealed. 
Dr. Walker hesitated, concerned for patient psychotherapist privilege. During their session, Mr. Stritzinger revealed specific incriminating details about the abuse, but offered no other incidents of abuse that was already reported. Deputy Buttle called back and requested those details. Again, Dr. Walker hesitated, but Deputy Buttle cited a California penal code, which he described as providing an applicable exception to the psychotherapist patient privilege. Dr. Walker then gave him specific details that were used in the trial. Mr. Stritzinger was eventually convicted of child molestation and sentenced to three years probation with 90 days in county jail. Mr. Stritzinger appealed the finding, stating that Dr. Walker's testimony should have been excluded. The California Supreme Court agreed with Mr. Stritzinger, basically stating that because there was no new reportable offense, Dr. Walker was not required by law to disclose any further information. They ruled that the, quote, record makes clear that although Dr. Walker voluntarily reported Sarah's disclosure of her sexual relations with her stepfather, he did not want to disclose defendant's confidential communications on the identical subject. He did so only at the behest of Deputy Buttle, who misled him into believing he was required by law to do so. It is therefore error to admit Dr. Walker's testimony concerning his consultation with the defendant, unquote. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. The court recognized the vital role of the psychotherapist patient privilege in encouraging individuals to seek mental health care. Disclosure of confidential communications can only occur under specific circumstances when public safety is at stake. And the court emphasized the need to balance the protection of children with the right to confidentiality in therapeutic relationships. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember that mandated reporting laws require a therapist to report only the zinger uh, for Stritzinger, which is the alleged illegal act, but does not require you to report further evidence obtained later if the abuse was already reported. Again, I remember that mandated reporting laws require a therapist to report only the zinger, which is the alleged act, uh, but does not require you to report further evidence obtained later um, if that same abuse was already reported. Our next case is State v. Andring. David Andring was charged with three counts of sexual misconduct for having inappropriate sexual contact with his 10-year-old stepdaughter and 11-year-old niece. While out on bail, Mr. Andring voluntarily checked into a treatment center for alcohol abuse and mental illness. During his intake and multiple one-on-one -on -one sessions, Mr. Andring disclosed information regarding his abuse. He made similar remarks during group therapy sessions. Prosecutors moved to admit the session notes from the individual <clears throat> as well as the group therapy sessions as evidence. The trial court denied admitting the notes from the individual sessions and the intake, but the court granted the motion for disclosures made during the group therapy sessions. Mr. Andring appealed to the Supreme Court of Minnesota. The Minnesota Supreme Court reversed, stating that while mandated reporting was an exception to psychotherapist patient privilege, this exception was not all-encompassing. It ruled that, similar to the ruling in People v. Stritzinger, if the abuse was already known, further disclosure is not required and could be considered privileged information. 
the Supreme Court also ruled that group therapy sessions are part of the treatment process and thus protected by psychotherapist patient privilege, same as individual sessions. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. The court recognized the importance of confidentiality in group therapy for facilitating open communication and effective treatment of mental health issues. The court balanced the individual's right to confidentiality with the state's interest in protecting children from abuse. The court ruled that the scope of the psychotherapist patient privilege extends to group therapy as well as individual therapy. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember the word and in andring referring to the fact that psychotherapist patient privilege applies to individual and group sessions. Our next and final case today is DeShaney v. Winnebago County. Joshua DeShaney was born in Wyoming in 1979 to his father, Randy DeShaney, and mother, Melody DeShaney. The couple divorced in 1980, and custody of Joshua was granted to his father, Randy. In 1983, Joshua was brought to the hospital for various injuries and was suspected to have been abused. The Winnebago Department of Social Services, or DSS, attempted to obtain a court order to keep the boy in hospital custody. The court order was dismissed a few days later, and Joshua was returned to the custody of his father, but he was required to enter into an agreement with the DSS, stating that he would enroll Joshua in preschool, and that he would enroll in parenting classes, and agreed to periodic visits from the DSS. It appears that Randy did not comply with his end of the agreement, but did allow periodic visits. The DSS were concerned for continued abuse, but no further action was taken. In March of 1984, Randy beat Joshua so severely that he fell into a coma with severe and permanent brain damage. He would spend the rest of his life in a vegetative state and died at the age of 36. Randy was subsequently tried and convicted of child abuse, but served less than two years in jail. Joshua DeShaney's mother filed a lawsuit on his behalf against Winnebago County, the Winnebago County DSS, and DSS employees, claiming that by failing to intervene and protect him from violence about which it knew or should have known, the agency violated Joshua's right of liberty without the due process under the 14th Amendment. The district court granted summary judgment for DSS, as did the U.S. Court of Appeals, stating that because he was not under the care of the state, the due process clause didn't apply. The U.S. Supreme Court granted cert. The Supreme Court affirmed the findings of the lower courts. They stated that a state or county agency does not have an obligation under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to prevent child abuse when the child is in parental, not agency, custody, and the state did not create the danger or of abuse or increase the child's vulnerability to abuse. The court found that the due process clause refers to the state's responsibility against their own state actions and does not apply to the actions of private citizens. Here's a summary of the key points of the ruling. The Supreme Court ruled that the state's responsibility primary, primarily lies in preventing its own agents from violating individual rights, not guaranteeing safety from private abuse. They also ruled that the Due Process Clause focuses on preventing affirmative state action violating individuals' rights, not addressing harm inflicted by private parties. Now how to remember the ruling. I remember the acronym DSWC 
for Deshaney versus Winnebago County, DSWC. And I remember D for due process applies to state actions and won't apply to citizen actions. Again, DSC or DSWC, due process applies to state actions and won't apply to citizen actions. All right, that's it for new cases today. Let's quickly review the mnemonics. Our first case today was Landeros v. Flood. And I remember LF for Landeros and Flood, uh, the initials of the two people named in the case, for leg fracture, the initial injury that was missed by Dr. Flood, and how he was liable for not figuring out the abuse. And I also remember how the litigation floodgates open up if you don't report potential child abuse. And the next case was People v. Stritzinger. And I remember that uh, mandated reporting laws require a therapist to report only the zinger for Stritzinger, which is the alleged uh, illegal act, but does not require you to report further evidence obtained later if the abuse was already reported. Uh, our next case was State v. Andring. I remember the word and in andring, referring to the fact that psychotherapist patient privilege applies to both individual and group sessions. And then our last case was DeShaney v. Winnebago County. And I remember the acronym DSCW for DeShaney and Winnebago County. And I remember due process applies to state actions and won't apply to citizen actions. All right, that's a wrap on episode 22 on child abuse reporting. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a review and be sure to subscribe to be notified the next time an episode is released. Cheers. Cheers.